Welcome back to another episode from the Global Startup Movements with your jet-lagged host, Andrew Berkowitz. I've just returned from an amazing trip to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where I attended the second edition of this year's Africa FinTech Summit. Huge congratulations to Leyland Rice and his team for putting on a fantastic event. Be sure to come back next week when we publish an hour-long special recorded at the conference titled Ethiopia FinTech Diaries. But today, we have an inspiring episode with the CEO and founder of Dynamic Planet, Kristen Reckberger. Dynamic Planet helps to develop conservation businesses that maximize environmental, social, and economic returns to regenerate landscapes, seascapes, and communities across the animal kingdom. As Kristen and I discuss, innovation and startups have a unique role in helping to solve the many environmental challenges of our time. And I hope you walk away from this conversation feeling as inspired and hopeful as I was about how well we're equipped as individuals nowadays to tackle these challenges. So without further ado, I'll present to you my conversation with Kristen Reckberger, CEO and founder at Dynamic Planet. Joining me in studio today is Kristen Reckbarger, who is the CEO and founder of Dynamic Planet. They're doing some amazing work under the radar, but we get the inside scoop today, which I'm very excited about. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Andrew. Why don't we just start off with, with Dynamic Planet? What was the motivation to start it, and, and what do you all do? Oh, great. So um, we're a company based in Washington, D.C. We started in 2012, and... Our mission is really to advance markets that restore nature. So what does that mean? Um, right now, our capitalism is based on financial returns, and traditionally that's been um, really short-termism and trying to get as much money as quickly as possible. But we know now that that's highly eroded the environment. And so we work on regenerative landscapes and seascapes. And the quick background is I was at National Geographic and working on a lot of cool projects in different roles over 14 years and developing all sorts of um, different projects with fundraising and kind of ongoing business development to bring the brand into the 21st century and also expand a lot of the, the products of National Geographic, including grow the global cable channels and things like that. And I really loved media and my background in documentary film. And fundraising is obviously really important, too, because you need to make things sustainable uh, financially. But I also just found working there how in trouble, particularly the ocean was. Mm. And I had no idea at the time. And so my work at Dynamic Planet is really to, to try to bridge um, the amazing work that philanthropists have done um, with NGOs in the environmental space, but also expand it into the larger markets and make it much more mainstream. So, I mean, I would love to really dive into kind of where where, where startups have a role to play in this. But, but first off, I mean, can you touch on what is... It feels like it's getting harder and harder. I mean, we're in this era of, of fake news, and it's getting harder to perceive truth, even mm -hmm. from these legacy brands that we used to just take for granted that we can trust them. But now it seems everybody has their own agenda, everybody. And so it's hard to know what's, what truth is, right? And so can we, I guess, start this off of just like, you know, what, what's been overhyped and what are the, ac the actual problems that are, that are going on right now? Oh, my gosh. So... You know, I think it is hard to figure out what's going on, and there's a very fragmented media space now, obviously, and it's getting yeah. more and more fragmented all the time. 
and people are increasingly tuning into what they want to believe. Exactly. But science doesn't care what you believe. And so I think really um, news and facts have to go back to science. And science, just as a reminder, is proven, peer-reviewed, proven stuff over time built on human knowledge over lots and lots and lots of testing. We don't we don't throw something into the air and wonder if it's going to fall again. We know what gravity is. So there's some things that don't need to be debated. And I think um, climate change is frankly one of them at this point. Um, so we're living in two major real crises right now. One is the climate crisis and one is the biodiversity crisis. And I, I think most people know, they've probably seen it themselves or heard from family stories, there's less fish in the waters. We've um, captured over 90% of our largest fish you know, since wow. since early fishing, they're gone. You know, the big the biggest creatures of the sea are gone. Uh, fisheries are projected to collapse by 2050 if we keep going at current rates. Um, I don't know how old you are, but I'm. Um, I was born in 1973, and I can say in my lifetime we've lost 60 percent of terrestrial biodiversity mm. and life um, since 1970. Wow! I mean, 60 is is an extinction crisis. And also, I mean, I remember I grew up in rural western New York, and you, you know, if you're driving out in the country, there's, you have to wash your windshield after a weekend of driving around. We don't have to do that anymore. You know, the mm-hmm. insects are gone, which means the birds are starting to decline. I mean, all this, we're, we're seeing things. If you're paying attention to our environment, we're seeing pretty drastic changes just in a couple decades. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm curious of why, I guess, your time at Nat Geo, why, why was the ocean in particular something that you honed in on? I just, it wasn't really on my radar. And I, um, you know, more and more ocean scientists were coming to us with their projects. And it really just woke me up to how much we've overfished and really taken out of the ocean everything we want and thrown in everything we don't want is the simple bad relationship mm. that we created. Okay. And so now it's about how do we flip that back around? I mean, I think it's been amazing to see how much people have woken up to the ocean plastics crisis in the last couple of years, which is really, really important. But there's all sorts of other things going on with the ocean, too, and it's a really complex system. The cool thing is if you set a little bit of it aside, it regenerates really quickly. Mm. So we've been working with National Geographic's Pristine Seas uh, Program led by Dr. Enrique Sala. And as they get places protected, some of the largest places on the planet, uh, we work alongside them on the business models to keep those places protected. So building sustainable tourism inside the marine protected area and then sustainable fisheries outside and collect, connecting up those local markets. What's your opinion on all these like Beyond Meat, meat, meat replacement companies? I think these options are really important. Um, and they, they don't um, necessarily solve all the problems. I mean, um, you might have seen some studies where there are vegetarian options also that are high footprint, you know, depending on what kind mm. of vegetarian. So if you're eating a lot of soy, soy crops take up a lot of space. So there's, there's all sorts of costs and benefits to different options. But I do think it's become very, very clear in the climate. Part of the solution to the climate crisis is meat, eating much lower on the food chain and being much more thoughtful about how we eat protein. And there's some really exciting innovations coming out in the food yeah. space, I think, including in aquaculture. So mm. half the fish we eat is farmed, but we're not farming fish very sustainably. So we're involved in a bunch of companies through a group out of the Netherlands called Aquaspark. And they're looking at investing along the value chain to improve sustainable seafood farming. To be honest, I'm very skeptical of these meat replacement companies in terms of their claims that it's healthier healthier than meat. Because like all all because it's plant-based, if it's created in a lab, I mean, 
doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthier than meat. I actually think meat's pretty good for for us. But I did. I was at Burger King a couple of days ago, and I fr- I tried the um, their Beyond Meat Burger. Did you? It was really good. I haven't had it I, yet. I thought it was really. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, they, that's the one that like bleeds beet juice, right? Does it? I, I don't know. I don't did know. It look, did it look juicy and? It did. Like, it did. Maybe okay. So maybe that was. Yeah. Okay. That would make sense then. Yeah. I don't know. I um. I think your point is good because I think it, it all comes back to being really clear about how we source the food, right. what the footprint of that original sourcing is, if it's fair and equitable to the farmers, and then how healthy it is to the consumer. So for example, um, these pro- if it's still really processed, it doesn't mean it's still as healthy for us as other more raw food, um, right. especially raw vegetables and things we could be eating. So we have to weigh all that. And we have to make it, I think, a lot easier for people to make those choices. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So that group you mentioned in the Netherlands, I mean, like who who has the most responsibility in terms of like deploying capital to help solve these problems? Like you have, you know, venture capital, private equity, impact investors. You have, I mean, these corporates that are just sitting on like huge amounts of cash, right? Like, so who, who who's the most responsible for fixing these problems? You're hitting on the biggest, you know, question as far as how do we kind of rebuild capitalism in a much more thoughtful way. And you're hitting on um, a lot of what we believe in. So so we know we have to do three big things by 2050. One is get off fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels should stay with the fossils in the ground. We know that now. Um, the second big thing is to produce smarter, better food and make sure that um, we're doing it in a much more efficient way. 30 to 40% of the food that we produce now is wasted, which is a crime. Mm. And um, that's responsibility of a lot of different parts of the supply chain that we can talk about. And the third big thing that is is um, kind of counterintuitive, actually, is that people will say, well, with 10 billion people, we need to feed them. You know, 10 billion people coming up. And it's like, yeah, we, we, we actually have enough food. We can do it more efficiently. And we have to actually give more space, not less space, but more space to nature so it can keep providing for us. So that includes, you know, if once we have that, those those planetary boundaries or those safe zones in nature, we can have the products and services that we all take for granted, which is yeah. fresh air and clean water and really good food. So the food system is critical to making productive and efficient and far more sustainable and far more earth-friendly. And I think it's up to consumers to raise the questions. Um, producers to be just a lot more thoughtful about how they're producing food and making sure, again, that we don't have poverty in the supply chains. A lot of the hardest working people are the, the worst paid. And um, the, you're right, there's a lot of capital um, sitting in finance, sitting in development banks, sitting in venture capital. But I, I, and venture capital is cool for, for niche products until they get bigger, but it's not going to necessarily change the entire system. Right. You also have to head into, when you're thinking about any of these majorly entrenched markets, whether it's um, energy or food, there's obviously the subsidies issues too. Mm. So there's a lot of money going to not necessarily productive subsidies in the food space. And that includes agriculture and also fisheries. So we know, for example, in the fishing space, um, $35 billion a year is, is in put into fishing subsidies around the world, many of which are harmful. So you have... Um, the World Bank did a report some years ago called the Sunken Billions. And they said that if you took half the fishing fleets off the ocean, you'd have the same fishing efficiency. Mm. Wow. So there's that many groups out there being paid to go out and 
yeah not be productive i think i mean that's in my opinion that's the biggest problem across like almost every problem we have in society it's just like if we can make things more efficient that will solve so many problems with with the food supply chain it's like you have what i think you mentioned 30 to 40 percent of food is is wasted but it's also on the other end you know we had a startup here called agrimovial in the early days of doing this show they're trying to solve the inefficiency of actually getting the crops from from the smallholder farmers to market Mm -hmm. before they go bad because i mean there's tons and tons and tons of produce that's just wasted because that that process is broken and then we talk about i mean here in washington washington dc the amount of waste that our taxpayer dollars goes to it's unbelievable like i know and i was i keep thinking that why can't we be tracking excuse me some of that um government money with more transparency yeah i mean why can't we be using technology so that people can really understand where their taxpayer dollars are actually going yeah i think if if people understood where their money was going, they could have more of a say in that. They'd be, and they'd, very, they'd be very angry. I think, they'd they be very, probably very angry. Some of the stories I've heard from these government <laughs> contractors, unbelievable. Like literally teams that are overstaffed and they're just paying full-time people to do nothing. Because, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, that, that's a whole different it episode. Is, it's true. There's rant. a lot yeah. of waste. There's a lot of waste. And it, it can be made much more efficient. So in our space with Dynamic Planet, we're working top-down. And there's increasing investments towards ESG, which is environmental social governance investing. And that's exciting. But because um, banking is typically so low risk and they like to see the same thing over and over and over, we know that business as usual is actually getting us in trouble. Mm. So we actually have to change the system. So what we're trying to do is rebuild supply chains from from the water or ground up. And how do you how do you make that a lot more transparent? And how do you feed those small medium enterprises into much larger markets so that that um, Walmart can say we're buying from the best farmers in the most sustainable way? And 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 we get phone calls from big companies often. We'll be like, we buy top down. We actually don't even know where our supply chains end. We don't know mm. if we deforesting the Amazon. Now, right. that's alarming, right? Well, I think. Well, I think that point of like banks like to do what's what's always worked. That's why venture capital and startups is important to to, to at least be that that first believer believer in entrepreneurs that might have this crazy idea of like I don't know a, a vacuum that could suck CO two out of the air or something. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, but what are what are some of the technologies like these new technologies like AI, blockchain? Like, wh- where do you see some of these new technologies getting applied? Like, I mean, is there a particular one of those that you think is going to have the biggest impact on your work? I think it's a whole suite of tools that are coming out that make it. I think that's what's really exciting about the space we're working in right now. So just as an example, I've been working on a protected area effectiveness framework with a team of people. And these are some of the best conservation practitioners in the world. So um, in the sea, that includes National Geographic's pristine seas. And on the land, it includes groups like African Parks. Um, community conservancies across Africa, uh, Tompkins Conservation in Chile and Argentina. And these are best-in-class players who have been working on national park systems on the ground. And not just national park systems, but community conservancies. And both are really important. Um, They take a long time to grow, to bring in the philanthropy, to talk to the government, to try to make sure that 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 place is well protected and well managed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of issues just getting boots on the ground and just getting the right um, the right systems in place because of the the major demands on our natural resources. These are often places that are, have huge poverty, and um, there's a lot of desperation in these areas based on bad governance over time. Yeah. 
But what technology is bringing to us now, what we can see from satellite is astounding. So there's all sorts of groups out there right now, um, whether it's open source um, satellite systems or more private groups like Planet Labs. And you can see down to you know the square foot of land now. So you can actually see reforestation, deforestation, fires, droughts, things like that, which allow for much, much better management for groups and allow for investors to see if we're going to invest in this place, what's really going on there. Right. So that's exciting. And if you add, if you add the top-down approach of what's happening from a satellite view, for like Global Fishing Watch, we weren't able to see where fish, what, what fish is what's happening in the ocean until recently. Global Fishing Watch is an amazing technology that, that combines satellite with AI, funded in part by Vulcan and a whole bunch of other groups. And they basically put together this system where you can see down to the vessel if it's fishing within a marine protected area or not, what the pattern of that fishing is. If, if, if it's illegal fishing, they often are dropping off their fish to a mothership and not actually going back to shore, which also implies slave labor mm. because there's people on board that never get off. So there's all sorts of ways we can start connecting up these visuals from space to what's really going on on the ground or in the water. And then um, on the back to your question about... Um, consumers and supply chains and whose role is it to really start changing these food systems i mean wouldn't it be cool if you could take your phone and flash it onto your plate at dinner time and see where your fish came from and it tells you who fished it where it came from what kind of fish it is whether it's threatened or not how you can help so i think blockchain and things like that can help connect up that supply chain in a much more transparent way so there's these within supply chain technologies, and then there's things like satellite views that allow us to understand much quick, more quickly what's going on in a place. Right. You make me think of the all these uh, Microsoft AI commercials with Common. That's just like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all these technologies you're talking about, are, they, are, these like, are these startups, or are these like, like more like, like federal research lab type um, technology? That's... They're a combination. I mean, satellite is often government labs that open up data over time. Okay. There's a lot of, what I hear from a lot of groups is there's a lot more data sharing that needs to be done, especially between governments. That's, you know, mm-hmm. becoming an increasing issue, um, especially when it comes to global commons and global good, like the ocean right. or like freshwater resources and things like that. Um, a lot of them are really generous philanthropists that really are taking their wealth and applying it to specific passions that they have and pulling together best-in-class teams and trying to make this work. So that's, that's what happened with Global Fishing Watch, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I've personally become much more passionate about um, the, the federal, federally funded IP because that's, I mean, that's really, we, we want to talk about how can we increase our competitiveness as, as like a, a startup uh, country getting more IP out of the government and into the private sector, I think is, is the key to doing that. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of foundations that are, 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 bent, are like focused on this concept of like ecosystem building and like that has its place, but every, every, every city, every town, they have their incubator, they have their coworking. Like it's, that's not what's going to move the needle. What I think is going to really move the needle and the, the trillion dollar opportunity is getting more of that IP out into entrepreneurs' hands and seeing what they can do with it. Um, so what are the challenges on that? Oh, What's man, blocking it? Uh, there's One is discoverability, because a lot of these uh, inventions in IP are, I mean, it's like re- university by university, government agency by government agency, and they're just like sh- sitting on a shelf somewhere. No one even knows it's there. Or maybe it's like on, on their website somewhere. It's very hard to find. And then once you do find an invention that you, you actually want to try to commercialize, then you have to go through this very long negotiation project 
a process and there's a hierarchy that you have to deal with and sometimes it'll be like yeah you know we want a two million dollar licensing fee up front and then royalties over time and so there's so many reasons why that process is broken and um there's this woman that i need to connect you with rosemary truman she has a nonprofit here in dc called the center for advancing innovation and they're doing some cool stuff and actually trying to fix that she's actually doing some supply chain stuff with the walton family that you know i'll, I'll definitely connect you with her but right i think that's that's the number one thing that can move our economy forward and also bring solutions in, into the market that um can solve some of these problems that sh- that you're talking about that are very very important and i think i think supply chains fixing supply chains is probably i think you would agree is the most important way that we can start the process of fixing the environment of tackling any, anything that's going on with climate change ip is going to do that ip is going to do that so let's talk about your time in in southeast asia i think i mean was that that was early on in your career right very early on i had graduated from uh, college and i i really wasn't excited about the troops of investment bank interviewers and people coming through. I was really passionate about getting out into the world and exploring and learning and just seeing how things work in other places. And so I was really lucky to win a loose fellowship. And this was right after I graduated from undergrad. And that was way back in 1991. So I went to Seoul, Korea and worked for the educational broadcasting system as my loose foundation placement. And had a wonderful year um, producing a Sunday night um, series with a whole bunch of local Koreans at the time. And also ended up meeting a ton of people in the region and continuing to to work in Asia off and on for the next several years, specifically in Indonesia and Cambodia and Hong Kong. And so have you you been back like... To, to see kind of how that's developed since since that time? I try to get back as much as possible. Okay. I love I love all parts of the world, and I've had wonderful adventures through my work, um, but I particularly love Asia, and I knew even then, 25 years ago, it was pretty clear that Asia was going to be the future. Yeah, It was really starting to explode, and even Korea, where, again, I was in 19... Uh, actually, I... That, I apologize. <laughs> totally wrong. Yeah. I graduated from school in 1995. Mm, okay. And so I was in Korea from 95 to 96 on a loose foundation fellowship. And um, it was at the time I had studied public policy at Duke University and focused on telecom and film and video. And in the U.S., I'd studied how do North Carolina schools get access to the Internet. And, you know, that was that was the big dream of teachers teaching um, the world from the super right. high tech classrooms at the time, and some places did it. A lot of places in the U.S., you know, it took a long time for that to to become popular. Yeah. But um, in Korea, they said we want to we want to wire our country in like a year. I was like, really? And not knowing that you know, so making South Korea is a certain amazing entrepreneurial mindset, and it's also three quarters the size of North Carolina. They just did it. And so South Korea you know, is three quarters the size of North Carolina. Yeah. So it's wow. a pretty, you know, small country and a really driven country and very, very entrepreneurial and very can do. And I, you know, you go to Korea now and it's a very different place 20 years later. Right. I mean, totally went from um, rice patties and, and very, you know, lots of country living to a super high tech right. center. Yeah, yeah. No, Korea is amazing because they they went, you know, they went very, very quickly from a country that received aid to a country that gave aid. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, do you think good governance is, is one of the one I of think the it's a combination. I mean, it, it's a super important geopolitical center. So the, right. the U.S. continue to support it in a big mm. way. And um, sense. yeah, it's the people there are so they have so much fortitude. You know, they've been in between you know Japan and China. They've been in this. They called it the Hermit Kingdom for 200 years because they were hunkered down in survival mode, doing their own thing. And they're just very, very thoughtful and strong and tough people who are future-minded. They're real survivors. We need some of that here. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing people. I love them. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's the one region where I kind of, I haven't really traveled extensively. I mean, I'm the problem with Africa is it just eats up my travel budget. It's so expensive. <laughs> it's so expensive to fly there. Where have you um, been in Africa? Oh, all over. So I'm heading to Addis on on Tuesday, actually. Nice. Um, oh, wonderful. But I even with a even with a discount I got, I'm still paying nine hundred seventy dollars for my flight there. And so like you That's know, a lot, so, yeah. yeah. So I've been like uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, Morocco. I, I need to get to South Africa soon. I'll probably be there in January. I'm actually looking at leases in Joburg nice. uh, starting in February because my lease is up he- here in D.C. then. Um, but I, I really love Africa. I mean, it's very um, – just very warm people. I mean, it's like you, you, can see, you can see the soul of humanity in, in the eyes of the people there. Uh, I, I love it there. I really it's a do. wonderful place. I've been lucky to go to Rwanda the last couple of years. Rwanda is amazing, <clears throat> amazing case study. So – it is an amazing case study, and these again amazing reconciliation process going on there. And I think many Americans probably think of Rwanda and they think of the genocide, yeah. and it was horrific, and it wasn't that long ago. But it's such an amazing country now, and it's quite stable currently. And their conservation model is astounding. So um, we use that as an example around the world in places that we work, whether it's Galapagos or Palau or many many other places where. You can take uh, an important iconic species of your own habitat, one of your own national treasures, like the gorillas mm-hmm. in, in Volcanoes National Park, and they set a high price, but it's a price that's keeping the gorillas alive because there's a whole chain of local people who are making a lot of money off of those gorillas. So that's, there's the, you know, the people who are trekking, and then the tour guides, and then there's a really smart educational system built around it, and there's... Um, a really wonderful, immersive program for all of that. And then as you're um, visiting these these gorillas with the locals, it feels like such a spiritual experience. It's it's incredibly. It's just it's just one of the most amazing experiences. And it, and what I love about it is it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're encroaching on a territory. It feels like you're sharing something really, really special with local people and local wildlife. And it feels like an equal relationship. And right. and that, you know, we, we try to give countries and who are thinking about sustainable tourism the right thinking about price points and thinking about quality instead of quantity. And we hope everyone can go everywhere all the time eventually. But some of these places are really fragile. And right, right, if right. you charge enough and you reinvest back into these places, there's, there's plenty of money to be managing these places. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in a lot of, a lot of the cases. But um, I've been attending the Business of um, Conservation Conference okay. in Rwanda, and it started just two years ago. And I helped coach some um, nature entrepreneurs there this year. And they had great ideas around how to protect their um, local parks and do better community service and um, really work with um, 
their own park management and beyond with really smart conservation businesses. So that often includes agroforestry in the buffer zones or in the marine space, sustainable fisheries. Mm-hmm. So the food systems are, you know, budding right up against our, our, our natural infrastructure right now. Yeah. And the more we can use our blue and green infrastructure to complement gray infrastructure, that's where we can really start working with political economies from the ground up. You know, so you're not just working on um, individual projects that are generally supported by philanthropists, but you're really looking at the larger political economy and you can start working with blended finance models that include development banks and private financing. And then you really start to flip around a nature-generated economy yeah. in, a, in a much, I think, smarter way. <laughs> so I think, I think Rwanda has a very good, they have a very good marketing team, for sure. So here's, here's a tidbit that you might find interesting that I, I just learned about a couple weeks ago, actually. Rwanda has a similar pop- population and the same GDP as Haiti. They're, really? They're equal, yeah. Equal in population and GDP. Wow. Right? Wow. Which is, which is interesting. But I think it goes to show the... And, and, and this is kind of a, what we were touching on before, the, the momentum of a society, right? It's very clear what direction Rwanda's headed in and the momentum that you know, Kagame as a leader has, has, uh, has, has put the country towards. And I think it's, you know, good governance is certainly a piece of it, but it's maybe easier to have good governance in a country like Rwanda with a, with a much smaller population than the, than the rest of Africa, whereas you have someone like Nigeria where you just have hundreds of millions of people and like you know it's a much it's a much broader challenge to get identity right and to get a lot of a lot of these you know things that are important for good governance right um but i think rwanda will still turn out as like the case study that other african countries look to as how do we attract investment capital and how do we uh how do how do we run our country mm-hmm. so yeah uh yeah is there anything uh anything else that we need to touch on or anything about dynamic planet that we, we haven't talked about no i love your last point leaders matter personalities yes, and character sure. really matters and um i think that entrepreneurs are critical to making the world work better and entrepreneurs can be anywhere they can be in government they can be um, in the private sector and it's people who are just willing to take risks and be creative and be kind and think differently about uh solutions to a problem without a vision the people perish mm-hmm. But Christian Reckberger, CEO, founder of Dynamic Planet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.